together here today to express our deep frustration with this most exclusionary of cops. I'm prepared along with every Fijian to do what is necessary to secure our future and ensure we can grow our island economy in a warmer world. We now understand this problem. We know how to stop the number rising and put it in reverse. Hello, welcome to The Lid Is On from COP26. And I'm with Lara Quinones. Hello. Hey. And I'm Connor Lennon, by the way. I, I forgot to even... You know. forgot your name already? That's where we got to, Lara, <laughs> on this day. Day 12, stroke 13, depending on how you count it. And as we speak right now, it's still unclear whether or not the conference is going to even come to an end today. I mean, it was scheduled for 6 p.m. and it is now, yep, overdue. Yep, overdue. Uh, there were some people walking into the plenary, though, but I don't know. I think they're going to be waiting for a long time. <laughs> yeah, well, negotiators have been arguing over the words, the commas, the brackets, the full stops. And we've seen some of them. You said they were chilling at the moment. Well, uh, yeah, a bunch of them are around. They're getting interviewed by, by the press. And um, but many issues apparently still remain those table. core issues. Yeah, yeah, the core issues: loss and damage, and finance. Um, a stronger call fossil for fossil fuels. fuels, fossil fuel phasing out, not just coal, but all of them, and also the subsidies. So yeah, it's very uncertain right now uh, what's going to happen. Very hard to know. And yeah, it's nice to see these negotiators in the flesh. Actually, I mean, I've been wondering what it's like for them. I mean, their work just always seems to get harder and harder as you get close to this crunch time. Yeah. And uh, the official COP26 Twitter account put out a helpful short video, didn't they, with Archie Young, the UK lead climate negotiator. He painted a pretty clear picture of what these two weeks have meant for them. There are a lot of myths told about the day of a negotiator, but the one thing that is true, it is hard. Imagine trying to bring together 197 friends and trying to get them to agree on where to go for lunch. Actually, you're trying to bring them together to try to agree decisions that will have fundamental impact. We are deciding the detailed rules, systems, mechanisms that will underpin the grand commitments that have been made. That's why we work through the night. That's why we focus on the detailed text. These words matter. These words will then be taken home by the countries that are here and they will be taken into their parliaments and lead to legislation and policies. They will be taken away by businesses into their boardrooms to action that will actually fundamentally change people's lives. Archie Young, UK lead climate negotiator at COP26, and you really get a sense of the huge responsibility that these people feel. They do. They have they have literally the world in their hands. Yes. The future of our planet. Well, look, the last two weeks have flown by, haven't they? Well, they have for me anyway. I mean, I, it's a blur. So much has happened. It is. It is, though. Like, I, I, I can't believe it's, it's almost over. Uh, when we started this first podcast two weeks ago, it feels like... <laughs> Well, do you remember what happened on day one? Or would you like me to remind you? Uh, take you yes, back. So we're going to go back yeah, in the mist of time and kind of go through some of those back. highlights. Um, don't lose it just yet, Lara. Come on, keep it together. It's not over yet. Anyway, there was a real sense of energy and people who are real cop veterans were saying, no, no, it just, it just feel a bit, a bit different today. Yeah, it was very exciting. Uh, what else happened? Oh, uh, we upped our step counts. Uh, do you remember that first day? Oh we realised just how unfit... <laughs> 
<laughs> the whole lockdown thing has made us working from yeah. home. By the time we got from the security zone to the media center, we were completely out of breath and thinking, how, how are we going to manage this? Yes, but now we're like experts. We're like, we're, like, we're running the marathon every day. <laughs> we are super fit. Um, actually, it's not true. We're no, still eating not, junk food. and <laughs> We survive on chips and sandwiches, basically. Yes, so pretty much. Yeah. For me, the highlight was David Attenborough, that stirring speech that he oh gave my God. on the plenary. Yeah, amazing. Is this how our story is due to end? A tale of the smartest species doomed by that all too human characteristic of failing to see the bigger picture in pursuit of short-term goals. Perhaps the fact that the people most affected by climate change are no longer some imagined future generation, but young people alive today, perhaps that will give us the impetus we need to rewrite our story to turn this tragedy into a triumph. We are, after all, the greatest problem solvers to have ever existed on Earth. We now understand this problem. We know how to stop the number rising and put it in reverse. We must have carbon emissions halt them this decade. We must recapture billions of tons of carbon from the air. We must fix our sights on keeping one and a half degrees within reach. A new industrial revolution, powered by millions of sustainable innovations, is essential and is indeed already beginning. We will all share in the benefits. Affordable clean energy, healthy air, and enough food to sustain us all. Nature is a key ally. Whenever we restore the wild, it will recapture carbon and help us bring back balance to our planet. And as we work to build a better world, we must acknowledge no nation has completed its development because no advanced nation is yet sustainable. All have a journey still to compete, so that all nations have a good standard of living and a modest footprint. We're going to have to learn together how to achieve this, ensuring none are left behind. We must use this opportunity to create a more equal world. And our motivation should not be fear, but hope. Yeah, David Attenborough, the famous a broadcaster with some really stirring stuff to to get people going and realize what this is all about and in the following day this is the second day of the world leaders summit i think for me this is when it all started with a bang because there was so much it seemed that there was so much going on that big pledge on reforestation mm -hmm. those hundred countries that committed to halt and reverse deforestation and also adaptation that's when you mentioned earlier adaptation has been a sticking point right from the beginning of the whole thing Adaptation was being talked about, that 100 billion a year that was promised for climate financing, half of which was to go to adaptation. But that target's never been reached. Nope. And it won't be reached this year either. At least until 2023, we won't be seeing those funds going to countries. And that actually that's not even going to be enough. We need much more. 
Well, on the first Tuesday, there was a big push to advance something called the African Adaptation Acceleration Plan, which was first announced again in COP21 back in Paris. And this is all about money or the lack of it to help African countries deal with the consequences of man-made change, climate change. These are destructive, deadly consequences. And there was an event on adaptation moderated by Patrick Fakoyan, the CEO of the Global Centre on Adaptation. This is an organisation backed by the UN. And it has a particular Africa focus because Africa is the continent that's suffering the most. Thousands of lives are being lost uh, a year and millions of people in Africa are losing their livelihoods. In essence, it's an adapt or die agenda. That's what African leaders have said before Glasgow. That is their ingoing proposition in terms of what they expect coming out of Glasgow. They expect concrete commitment towards their plan. We have launched our report on Africa, State and Trends on Adaptation in Africa report last week with President Kenyatta in Kenya. 330 billion is needed over 10 years, i.e. 33 billion a year. How much is flowing today on adaptation finance to the continent? 6 billion a year. So finance for adaptation is not flowing fast enough. Um, And I appreciate that the development plan, the finance plan on 100 billion was released uh, last week. But what is needed is also to deliver on the second component of the Paris Agreement on adaptation finance, that 50% of the development uh, plan, delivery plan, would be on adaptation. And we are far away uh, uh, from that particular number, the 50%. Yeah, I mean, Paris was six years ago now. Exactly. And what do you think are the main reasons why it's taken so long, given that you know adaptation was mentioned in Paris, developing countries were all calling for it, and there would seem to be a, an agreement in principle anyway. So why do you think it's been so slow? I think because adaptation was seen something of far away regionally, but also far away in terms of time when impacts would really come through. That was Patrick Fakoyan, CEO of the Global Centre on Adaptation, on how to pull together the billions that are needed to help African countries adapt to the climate crisis. Adaptation, as we said, is still one of the sticking points in achieving consensus today or maybe tomorrow. And this Monday, there was a day devoted to adaptation. And we heard from Prime Minister Bainimarama of Fiji, and he made it clear that he's far from impressed by the commitments made by richer countries at this year's COP. We welcome the new commitments made uh, last week. But with due respect, Mr. President, I can't feel any excitement for them because they are timid and uh, inadequate. Several major players, of course, as you know, are missing in action, and others have shown up with insufficient commitments that have uh, succeeded only in erecting speed bumps on the road that leads to the wrong side of 1.5 degrees of warming. Developed nations are failing us. They are the ones with the resources and the technology to make a difference. Yet, they have left the potential for clean energy and adaptation on the table by missing the 100 billion pledge two years running. Among others, the USA is woefully short of paying its fair share of climate finance. Now we, the most vulnerable, are told to suck it up and wait until 2023. There's no delay, Mr. President, to build resilience across Fiji's over 110 populated areas, islands, 
13 cyclones, 13 cyclones have struck Fiji since we ratified the Paris Agreement. Fiji has a trust fund uh, for relocation that finances the movement of uh, communities and infrastructure to higher ground. And we have offered refuge to the people of Kiribati, Tuvalu, in the event their nations are lost to the rising seas. So to answer your question, sir, no, I'm not excited. I'm not prepared, along with every Fijian, to do what is necessary to secure our future and ensure we can grow our island economy in a warmer world. Fiji's Prime Minister Frank Bainamarama really bringing home the fact that there are Pacific Islanders right now who are preparing to move to higher ground or even leave their island because their homes and villages are going to be submerged by rising seas. So, of course, another big topic has been energy. There was an energy day that was uh, last Thursday. Well, before the COP, UN Chief Antonio Guterres outlined four priorities that he wants to see for a sustainable energy future. Cutting in half the number of people without access to electricity by 2025, shifting to clean energy sources, achieving universal energy access by 2030, and ensuring no one's left behind in the race to a net zero future. And last week, more than 40 countries agreed to phase out their use of coal-fired power. This was a big deal. Coal, of course, being the dirtiest fuel source. A lot of major coal-using countries involved. They're all going to phase out their use of coal for electricity generation. The biggest economy is going to do it in the 2030s. Smaller economies doing it in the 2040s. However, some of the world's biggest coal-dependent countries still were not involved. And the exact language around fossil fuels in the final declaration is believed to be a bone of contention. It was thought to be a big deal that those words, fossil fuels, were even in the draft declaration. It is historical. It will be, if, if those words made it, make it to the final draft, um, it will be the first time they're actually mentioned in, in any outcome of a COP. Um, but yeah, there's still a lot of um, negotiations happening <laughs> in terms of, of that. A lot of countries today asked to uh, put in the text stronger language against fossil fuels, not only including, not only coal, but all of them. And this is when we get down to the exact adjective, the exact noun that's used around that yeah. and what that actually means. Some word can be stronger than other. Well, more than a billion people world might have no access to electricity at all. Most of them are in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, last Thursday, I listened to a panel about improving electricity access for people who aren't connected to a grid. And afterwards, I spoke to one of the panelists. He's Mansour Hamayoun. He has a company called B-Box, which makes solar-powered devices tailored for these remote African villages that have never had electrical power. And I asked him if he thinks that those billion people without electricity will ever be able to get connected. I mean, the opposite is horrible, right? <laughs> which is that uh, one-third of mankind not having access to electricity, energy poverty, etc., right? So the opposite is an unacceptable answer. So I think that's the only answer that we as mankind should be willing to pursue, right? And in some ways because... And it's a really hard one, right? Especially the clean element, right? It's not just having energy for all, but it's having enough energy for all, having that in a clean way, right? But what's exciting about SDG 7 in particular is that if you solve the problem of energy access, you're also solving a lot of other SDGs at the same time, right? Or you have a, a significant influence of like gender equality. You have, so it's one that you can, it has a lot of bang for the buck, quite literally speaking. So I think 
think this is why I'm glad that there's extra tension. One of the SDGs where the extra tension is being paid on is SDG 7. And the fact that we're having this conversation here today about this topic is really, really positive here at COP. That was Mansur Hamayoun, the CEO of B-Box, a technology company making solar-powered electricity kits. It's the kind of solution that, with government support, could help to bring clean power to the billion-odd people who still live without any electricity at all. So the point being made there was that there are loads of great solutions out there that can help us develop in a clean and sustainable way. And yesterday, this Thursday, I met the explorer Bertrand Picard, first man to go around the world in a hot air balloon and first man to take a solar-powered plane around the world. And he now runs a not-for-profit, the Solar Impulse Foundation, which presents countries with realistic, tangible solutions to decarbonizing their countries, their cities, their regions. He spent the fortnight having dozens of meetings with ministers to tell them precisely how they can decarbonize their economies. And I asked him what their response was. They're telling that we have to do something, but very often they don't really know how to do it. And our role is to bring them solutions to do it. And this is where comes the 1,000 plus solutions that we have identified everywhere around the world with the foundation. And they all create jobs, they all allow industrial profit, and they all protect the environment. And more than that, they are all available today. It is not this fantasy of future technologies that will save the world and that justify that we do nothing today. Not at all. It is something that helps us to act now. We're speaking on Cities Day. What has your experience been over the years that you've been traveling around the world? Do you see more signs that cities are becoming sustainable? Absolutely not. Even in modern buildings, in some countries, you have single glazed windows. You have no possibility to regulate the air conditioning. So it's freezing cold, wasting energy, built with old ways of producing cement and concrete. No, no, you know, it has to change because there are a lot of people moving from the lands to the, to the cities. A lot of cities, a new building have to be constructed and it has to be made in an efficient and sustainable way. Maybe the upfront investments for a carbon neutral building is a bit higher, but over the time of the life of the building, it is much cheaper because of all the energy that you are saving, all the resources you are saving. You have cements like the one produced by Oldsim, which is labeled by our foundation. It is half the CO2 emissions of normal cement. You have district cooling that allow to save at least 75% of the energy that is normally used for heating and cooling. And you have type of insulation in the buildings that allow you to keep the heat or the cold inside instead of wasting it. So all this gives hope, but it gives hope only if there are some regulations that will really become incentives to use the new systems. Because if it is still allowed to make dirty buildings, people will not move into using the modern ways to make buildings. So the solutions are there. You've been telling leaders this for years. Are you getting frustrated? I'm very frustrated to see that even in this cup, all the speeches start by there is a huge problem, then you have the list of the problems, and then it ends up with a conclusion that always says we have to act. And that's it. Okay, we have to act. But now it's time to say how to act. What are the solutions? What are the regulations we need 
to bring more of these solutions to the market. And this is what I'm really saying all the time, and it's frustrating to see that the narrative has to change, but takes a long time to be changed. That was the explorer Bertrand Picard of the Solar Impulse Foundation, admitting to being somewhat frustrated at how long it's all taking to bin fossil fuels and reach a clean, sustainable economy. Now, back to today, Lara. It was a people's plenary, wasn't there? There was, uh, and this was essentially a, a takeover of the floor by civil society, NGOs, indigenous people's organizations. And they were on the floor in the main room where you usually see delegates from countries, ministers, etc. They were quite frank about what they think about COP26. Unfortunately, here in Glasgow, the UK COP presidency has swept under the carpet all the opportunities for the people of the world to be able to speak to the COP agenda in a way that we can help shift the course we are on at the moment. We have come together here today as United Nations constituencies representing global civil society to express our deep frustration with this most exclusionary of COPs and the continued shirking of responsibility by those who have caused the climate crisis. That means, as we approach the end of this, the 26th annual conference of the party to the UNFCCC, we are hurtling ever closer to breaching the critical 1.5 degrees Celsius threshold. We will outlive this. We will outlive these empires that were built on our genocide. Our ancestors survived many apocalypses. And when we talk about this climate apocalypse, you know, we're going to survive it too, but it's going to come from the people. Some of the voices from the People's Plenary today from civil society, indigenous peoples groups, and uh, they staged a walkout, didn't they? I mean, this is quite yeah. something. They, they actually left the conference site. Yes, yes, I was there and they, they were actually very organized. They just walked out to meet another march that was outside, right on the bridge. The draft text is not enough for, for these NGOs, it's not enough, but a lot of experts actually believe that it is, it is a big step in the right direction, so yeah. Well, watch this space. Don't forget Lara's newsletter. If you haven't subscribed to it, do it on the UN news site, news.un.org. You'll have lots of useful, interesting information there. And of course, her main story on what's been happening today and at some point, maybe at the middle of the night, who knows? <laughs> we don't know. Her latest story about the final declaration. Lara, thank you. It's been a great two weeks. Been yeah. lots of fun as well, yeah. even though we haven't had much sleep. No. Is this it? Is this it? That's a big philosophical question you're asking, Lara. And uh, I, I think not one that I can answer right now. Let's wait and see.